Welcome to episode 44 of Chin Music. It's a podcast presented by Fangraphs from blustery DeKalb, Illinois. I'm Kevin Goldstein, and from what I'm sure is a much warmer and maybe calmer in terms of wind, Tempe, Arizona, joining me for another return to the co-host chair. I think you're the all-time leader now in co-host chairs. It's Eric Longenhagen. Eric, how are you? I'm pretty good. We actually had a, a temp downtick. It was in the 30s last night. Um, Ooh. But we were way still, warmer than you. We had a record high yesterday. We had 65 yesterday. Whoa. There's, it's pretty common around this time of year, especially I've lived here seven years now. And um, some, there are times when I'll go home for Christmas when it'll be warmer in Pennsylvania than it is here for a stretch. It's like happened two or three times. Yeah, it's 30-something today. We had a weird one-day thing. We got caught in between fronts again. It was very, very windy, and I was just glad not to have to call an insurance agent, as I usually have to do when it's 60-mile-an-hour winds. Why would you have to do that? Well, uh, earlier this year, we had 60-mile-an-hour winds, and a tree branch came, a huge tree branch came down off our maple in the back. That branch hit a, uh, a wire that was hooked to the house, and whoever attached that wire to the house did a phenomenal job of it, because the wire did not detach from the house. Instead, it kind of pulled about a 15 by 15 foot section of wooden siding off the house um, right. and and like pulled away from the window frame. Um, it was a good time. High, really good time. I um, wonder if the inability to own a home that ha- seems to plague most people who are about my age, people who graduated during the worst part of the recession in like, the 08 2011 range mm-hmm. um if it's if we're just kind of lucky <laughs> like it's just kind of like it's just you don't have to really think about it right to be fair like it, 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 my total outlay cash wise was 500 bucks my deductible insurance covered the rest um you know, it was just it was more just trying to get a contractor out here during the pandemic and at the time a wood shortage because we have wood siding on a very old house um but we finally got it done. It was. It wasn't. The, the, it wasn't the worst thing ever. Been through worse. I just. I think just part of owning my house was built in 1892, and I just like literally cannot have a single conversation with anyone who to do any work in this house that doesn't have at some point them saying, "I don't know why they did it this way." <laughs> That's so, awesome. I. Yeah. I. I don't know. I mean, from being around Philadelphia a lot, I see a lot, there are a lot of old buildings compared to other buildings in the United States. Obviously, like everything here is so new compared to stuff oh, yeah. you see in like Europe or parts of Asia or whatever. But um, but yeah, like eighteen ninety two is still kind of. I'm surprised by that. <laughs> it's it's not a new house. This house was built for the original Regents of Northern Illinois University, the Huskies. The Huskies. It, that's it's we've actually. There's no advantage to it though, other than a plaque. We, it, it, 
there, we've thought of getting like a historic designation for it, but that kind of creates more problems than it's worth. Hmm. I see those license plates on old cars, those like historic designations. Yeah, you can get them, but then like there's also there's a limit. Like it becomes a pain in the ass if you want to do anything to your house. Oh, because yeah, like it's protected in a way now. Yeah, it's very yeah. It's I don't think it's worth it. Anyway, welcome to the baseball podcast. Um, we're going to so obviously there's still no baseball and no baseball news for the most part um, because right. of the lockout, and so we're going to go uh, a little old school here because prospect season has started over at Fangraphs.com. Um, and as of this date, three prospect lists have come out with the Angels, the Cubs, and today the Oakland Athletics, which Eric and I work together on. Um, so we're going to talk about those three systems and do uh, the three system breakdown and, and just kind of go through some players, pick some guys we like, a um, couple gut feels, walk you through their systems. Um, our special guest this week is Ryan Thibodeau, who you might know better as the guy who tracks the Hall of Fame votes on Twitter. Uh, he's our listener of the week, and we'll talk to him about why the hell he does that, and I don't have a good answer for you. Uh, and then we'll get into uh, our musical guest, the Philly-based Dead Best. Uh, answer your emails, a little moment of culture and stuff, and we'll be out of here. You want to talk about baseball, Eric? Yeah, let's do it. You've been watching any of the live baseball that we do have access to? You watching Dominican games? I, yeah, as a default, like if there's nothing going on, I'll, turn on, I'll definitely turn on a lead-home game all the time. It's yeah, they're great. They're fun. If you've never been to one, I highly recommend it. Um, it's the best atmosphere ever, and it does kind of come through on TV. Um, I am always kind of fascinated by. Um, do you watch a lot of Lise? Uh, yeah. Um, it's a, it's a little bit much for me sometimes, but yeah, I do watch them. So if you watch Lise and you get because it's 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 not like this isn't MLB TV. Like you don't have a lot of options. If you watch a Lise home game, you're going to get the home game feed. And they'll say home game feed is two people, just like you normally get in a booth in, in the United States. And one guy is um, is kind of just t- calling the game. Uh, and, and the thing I like best about him is that he uh, breaks into Spanglish a lot. And so he'll be talking, talking, talking. Then he'll go, here's the pitch. Um, he says, here's the pitch a lot. He says, here's, he says, here's the pitch. Very manic. He says, here's the pitch before about 90% of pitches. And the other guy... This is something like for, if you are one of those people who likes to complain about commercialism in sports, do want do not watch lead dome games. Um, the other guy, as, as the other guy is doing the baseball, the other guy is not doing color commentary. He's nope. not very little. Um, he's simply reading commercials constantly. It's not just the commercials in between innings. Like the guy will go, I mean, I'll do this in English because my Spanish is horrible. But he'll go like, like here's the pitch, strike, and then the next guy will go. THA electronic rentals, a place to get your generators, and then you're this and that, you're this and that. Here's the pitch. Ground ball to shortstop. There's an out. Domino's Pizza. That's the pizza that Dominicans love. Make sure to get a Domino's Pizza. It's literally in between every any sort of lull in anything this right. guy's doing an ad. Anytime there's a 4-3 ground out, he'll read like a Brugal ad. <laughs> right. And a big Brugal yep. logo will, and banner will show up at the bottom of the screen. If you if, 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 if you are one of those people who gets really worked up about the concept of maybe a small patch on a uniform, Lee Dome's going to drive you crazy. But they yeah. got money to make. Yeah, it's it's lead up. They got money to make. There's something about the language barrier that makes it far less abrasive than it would be if it were being done in English. Like if it if Oh the, yeah, if it was in English, it would drive you crazy. Yeah, if it were just a brewer's broadcast or whatever, like there's no way I'd be able to watch it. But 
uh, yeah, there's just something about the fact that it can kind of wa- like wash away if you're not really paying attention. At least me, like I'm not a great Spanish speaker either. But unless I'm really paying attention to what they're saying to try to understand it proactively, then it you can just, just it out. Yeah. yeah, it just kind of goes away. I'm just you know, you just hear Socrates Brito's name and then kind of look up and there he is, and <laughs> just the players' names are the things that. It's still amazing that you know, like you you do get incredible aesthetic uh, juxtaposition in Leadom, like Jumbo Diaz pitching to Ricky Arasena. It's like really incredible. Um, I was actually on the Leadom website yesterday, looking at merch. Like I, the Instagram algo was like, "No, we know you want this," and. <laughs> It's like yeah, you can they're, they're, get an Estrellas Cano or Tatis jersey. You can get a Escojito Pujols jersey. It's kind of cool. If, yeah, you know, obviously, if you go, if you do baseball work, um, and you go to the Dominican for baseball work, you're going to fly into San Domingo, um, with America's airport, uh, and in the airport, there's two. There's two terminals at the airport, and and that makes the airport sound way bigger. There's two terminals, each with I think six gates, um, and in between the terminals is like the shopping area and restaurants and stuff. Um, and there is a store that's just, it's just the, the Lidome store with jerseys and hats and all that stuff. You'd lose your mind there. Yeah. Uh, if folks haven't tried to watch this yet, like the day this podcast comes out is the final day of the regular season. And then stuff starts to get kind of nutty because the teams who like press on in the playoffs get to select players from the teams who have been eliminated. And, and to so be clear, like, to- like four of the six teams make the postseason. Right, which is, which is an eighteen game. It's like a second eight. It's eighteen games, I believe. Like the second eighteen game season. But you can you'll see eventually, even during the Caribbean series, where the winners of the respective winter leagues play against one another. Uh, like the team from the DR is just loaded with guys who are on the eliminated team. So you do end up with like one hell of a baseball team ultimately at, at oh, the very sure. end, whichever team comes out of it is just going to have like, you know, Cano and even some of the young shortstop prospects who we'll talk about actually one of them today, yeah. like are just playing. Like they're just a bunch of That's 19, 20 year old good shortstop prospects who are playing in this league this year. Yeah, it's really fun. And I don't think it's really been out there enough. I don't, I would bet there are people listening to the show who do not know that if you have MLB TV, they are streaming lead home games. Um, yeah. They're there for you. Just open up the app or open up, um, you know, open it up on Apple TV, and the games are right there for you. Yeah, um, and and, the, and they're in Spanish. It's actually kind of wonderful. I, I love. I actually love the ads. Um, as yeah, the advertising 20, is fun. Yeah, somebody who's been there twenty twenty five times, I can go. Oh, I I know that place, <laughs> and I've, I've seen. Oh, there's the thing. I've driven there. Um, and so yeah, so they're they're great. I, I highly recommend it. If you're missing baseball right now, there's live baseball, and right now it is of a high quality, um, and it is of a. Uh, what was the, the what was the, uh, the the Mariners fun differential? Very high fun differential. Yep, um, highly recommended. So um, we'll start uh, our, our actual agenda now with a lockout update. There is no update. Um, we said last week they're not going to really talk. They're talking today actually, but they're talking about non-important stuff, and that's good. This is one of those things where this is a very normal part of any labor negotiation, be it baseball or. Um, I don't know, Kellogg's, don't buy Kellogg stuff right now. Um, and other things like that where you actually, are you, if we're not ready to talk about the big stuff, can we talk about the little stuff? So when we solve the big stuff, the little stuff's already solved and we can just get going. 
Um, so talking about non-economic issues right now, I believe is the term, and which is a very vague term because I don't know what isn't an economic issue. Um, but I'm, they're, they're taking care of, of the smaller stuff, uh, knowing that they're not ready to talk about the bigger stuff yet. And that's all I have for you. I, I am where I was last week where I think we're going to probably have a compressed spring training and miss some games at the, at the end of the day, but not a lot. Yep. But where, where are you? Are you somewhere around there? I think so. Um, in terms of my planning for the spring, like a Florida trip that doubles up spring training looks plus amateur stuff is on hold. Um, much to my mother's chagrin, she's in Port Charlotte. Uh, mm. But um, but yeah, that's that's where as far as how it impacts me at all. Like I'm just kind of doing the same stuff I would be at this time of year, and just. You know, the possibility of a delayed spring training is putting a, a damper on my ability to plan what I'm doing in, in February and March a little bit, but that's about it. Yeah, I feel pretty good that on February 15th, you're not going to have something to do, at least something to go see, I guess would be more accurate uh, in terms of professional baseball. Yeah, there's um, there's a junior college about. tournament in Panama City, I think on like February 4th or something like that, like... Mm. That's the start of when it's like, yeah, you know, should I start going out there? But yeah, probably not at that point yet. Yeah. Um, let's get into prospects. So it's prospect season, Eric. Um, we'll get into. I, I, we'll I, we'll wait until segment three with your catching up with Eric to talk about uh, prospect processes. But um, the the list started coming out. They started uh, with uh, you and and Brendan Galowski talking about the system that is the Los Angeles Angels. Um, Reed Detmers is still technically a prospect and is therefore their number one prospect. Also, their only guy who ended up with an FB of 50. Um, and then there are only two guys with even 45s in, in Sam Bachman and, and the young shortstop Earl Vera. Um, this isn't a very good system, is it? No. Um, two of these first three systems that we looked at are, are not very good. Um, at least the Angels system is not very good because of a few key components like Brandon Marsh graduating, Joe Adele graduating, uh, a bunch of the other recent pitching prospects, Griffin Canning, etc., graduating. And then the Dylan Bundy trade is really what robbed this group mm -hmm. of a lot of its depth. Um, the most interesting affiliate that this org had last year was definitely the complex level affiliate. That's the one that had Vera, um, Denzer Guzman, who was a big dollar shortstop signee from a couple uh, from last January's uh, international class was here for extended and then went back down to the, to the Dominican Republic to play in the uh, DSL. Adrian Placencia, teenage switch hitting middle infielder, uh, Edgar Cuero, uh, Nataniel Santana, like a bunch of the guys on the list were here on the complex, and they generally did okay. Vera played pretty well, but has some swing elements that are of long-term concern. Like he has a hole up and away from him in, in the strike zone, basically. His swing is pretty long. Uh, and Placencia had a terrible season. Like mo mostly on paper, the group did not perform great and just looks good from like a visual scouting tools perspective still. So... Mm -hmm. um, not you know none of those guys the group that looked good last fall uh and then during extended uh except for Vera and Ramirez a little bit like performed on paper so um that's still the group to watch uh though that group of players is likely to move through the system together for the most part so 
Um, it's just interesting to see how some of these teams navigated not having a short season affiliate anymore. And um, the Angels were just one who just le- like left their group of players basically on the uh, on the complex. And then what they did in the draft where they took all pitchers except for, I don't know, I think, no, they took all pitchers and just one of them was a high school guy, right? Like, right. Um, that was super weird. And so most of those guys are like the fat bottom of this list and then into the honorable mention section, like all the college arms they took basically. So I look, let's start with Detmers because he's our number one guy. Um, this is not your standard number one prospect that you expect just because obviously we've seen him a lot in the big leagues. But this is also, and you know, and you wrote this, um, this just kind of feels like a mid-rotation starter. This is this is not a, a world beater. This is not a, a a guy who I think is going to have a lot of, I think he's going to generally have his all-star breaks to himself and his family. Um, it, it just feels like a very safe, he's kind of ready to go. Um, you know, the, the, the curveball is the, is the bread and butter pitch here. Uh, he generally keeps it around the strike zone. Um, like the, the power stuff is just okay. It's not a big fastball. It's an okay slider. Um, change up is solid. He has a curveball and he, and he, and he can, and he can locate. Yeah. Um, this is one of those four pitch foundation guys who comes into pro ball and you, th- you hope that there's a velocity spike. And then if so, maybe you have, you know, Shane Bieber is the extreme high-end example of mm-hmm. what happens when there's like a foundation of four well-demarcated pitches and big command. And then everything ticks up because the arm strength has ticked up. And all of a sudden you have like a front-end starter. Um, the the layoff from the pandemic, shortened college season in 2020, uh, then getting a look at everybody during instructs, then having an off season, and then seeing everyone come in again for 2021 minor league spring training meant that a lot of guys, including guys on these three lists that we're going to talk about today, like had artificial velo bumps for a short period of time, or were still assessing whether or not they can sustain a velo bump that they showed long term. And Detmers is in that group a little bit, like. Devers was sitting 94 plus at the Futures game in a short look. And most of the public facing prospect industry was there to see that. And it's real easy to get over your skis a little bit when you see someone like this suddenly throwing that hard. Um, Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I still think that we're in a holding pattern. It's funny to say, like, about one of the more stable college prospects from a couple years ago and a guy who's just going to be in the big leagues basically to start. I mean, you feel great about the floor and the ceiling is just kind of still TBD. Yeah. I think that we've seen it before where guys, it's just velocity seems to be the easiest thing to develop. Now it is not the Holy grail thing that you're looking for as part of the foundation anymore. I don't think I'm certainly not. Um, it, It tends to be a thing that, is easy to develop relative to some of the other stuff. So Mm -hmm. there's a chance this guy pops in a way that is bigger than this, but we just have a low variance 50 on him, which is like super safe, probably going to rank somewhere close to 50th overall on the the top 100, just because these like big league ready fifties tend to. Right. And it's, it's funny because it's like saying he's a mid rotation arm is not an insult. Um, The industry pays $15 million a year for those. Um, You know, it's a good thing. Yeah, you have to, like, the way I look at it, I think the way we look at it is um, number one starters, like, there are maybe five of those. Right. (laughs) And 
really, you know, we're, we're thinking about it as if... There's plenty of number three starters going on opening day. Absolutely. And the, the best teams, like that's what we're, we're... When we say like a number three or number four starter, like a number four starter is just a 50, like that's a number four starter on like the Dodgers, you know? Right. Those um, guys get make eight figures. For number four starters make eight figures. Yes. Yep. Um, I want to talk about Sam Bachman a little bit. Obviously, we talked about him when he was drafted. Um, and he was uh, a, a wide variance of opinions on him going into the draft. Um, some teams had him high. Some teams had him low because of the injury history. And But more importantly, where he sits on the spectrum of future starter, future reliever. And there are some teams that try to capture this in their reports. And, and, and um, the Astros term is always reliever risk. What's the level of reliever risk? Uh, other teams, you know, put a put a grade on on or, or or kind of put a number on on where they are as far as um, their chances to start or or, or end up a reliever. Um, there's a lot of gray area with him. There's a lot of very very different opinions. I know people who think he's a slam dunk starter. I know people who would think he's a zero percent starter. Um, on the future starter reliever continuum, I would say I'm probably about seventy five percent reliever. Where are you? Like 90% reliever. Okay, so we're both very high that this guy's a future pen piece. And to be fair, you're talking about, like, in a short spurt out of the pen, probably 98 to a hundo with a, not a wipeout, but a plus slider. There just aren't any starters in Major League Baseball who look like look this. Like this. <laughs> right. I If you wanted to, like, part of, part of, the reason I'm so I mean, we're not low on this guy, like a 45 on a guy who we have evaluated as a reliever is a hell of a grade. Like we have him basically as a ninth inning weapon, eighth or ninth inning weapon, basically. So yeah, uh, high but leverage, like, high leverage reliever. The the injury stuff, hip and shoulder, the fastball shape. It's like a low uh, slot with a weird arm action plus the injury stuff. I get that. Like. It's not a super comfy looking delivery. No, like it, it. It's definitely, it's reliever vibes. Just watching him pitch. Even the lower slot guys who pitched enough in 2021 to like be on the qualified starter leaderboard, like Sean Manaya and Luis Castillo, like you can see a looseness and fluidity. There's something about those two guys that is not. Like, if you go find the Sam Bachman video on our YouTube channel, like you can just see what it looks like from 75 feet away, zoomed in two or three times or whatever. Like, it's violent, Sam Bachman's delivery. So, yeah, I, I can see how people look at the arm strength and project on the changeup because of the arm slot. And the shape of his changeup mirrors the shape of his fastball pretty well. And his slider is really hard. Like, there are definitely three pitches here, but... Yeah, I have a hard time projecting him as a as a starter based on the mechanical look and the injury stuff. So I, I don't want to I don't want to get too into. I mean, we're not going to cover all forty one prospects or what we did here, but I do want to talk about three and four because these are teenagers. Right, that's quite possible. A lot of people have never even heard these names before, um, but they're both they're both shortstops. Um, Arol Vera and, and Denzer Guzman. Vera was uh, a multi million dollar guy two years ago. Uh, Guzman was their um, their, their big 2021 guy. Um, these are both, uh, like athletic, good framed shortstops, 
Uh, Vera is probably the better defensive player, and therefore there's more uh, ability for him to develop just because he's he's a real shortstop. Um, Guzman could be a real shortstop. It's, it's kind of be determined. Um, you know, is that the separator between Y one's three and one's four? I think the switch hitting part of it for Vera is a separator and where he's at physically um, is a little bit of a separator too. Like Guzman is still, we're waiting for him to, to grow into any kind of like pro baseball physicality and Vera, it's much clearer that he's going to have that. He's arguably already does. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that like the thing to point at on the board is the risk column, which is really a variance column, but variance doesn't fit nice and snug in the tight little spreadsheet column uh, on the site. Um, And like, so Guzman of those two guys, I think Guzman is the one who actually has a better chance of like, being an everyday middle infielder of some kind. Whereas Vera, it's so clear that this guy's got so much on roster utility that like he's more of a, there's less variance. He is just more likely to be what we have him evaluated as, which is a 45. Like this is a good role-playing utility guy. He switch hits. He can play both up the middle positions. Like those guys tend to be something. So, uh, I think that, you know, there's a two year gap between the two of them. Vera's 19. Guzman is still, as we're talking here, 17. Uh, and Guzman having spent last year in the DSL is likely to come stateside for the summer and, and play on the complex. Uh, whereas Vera will probably go to, to low a, so there's two years between the two of them, but functionally one developmental year, because there's not like a short season, affiliate for Guzman to go to in 2023, which is what would typically occur. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that impacts their, the two of them like developmentally. Um, but yeah, I think that just being able to look at Errol Vera and say like, this is clearly a big league athlete from a physicality standpoint means that there should be a little bit of a gap. If you told me Guzman never developed that physicality, I'd, I'd believe you. It's happened plenty of times. Carlos Tochi at all. Right. Uh, That's a great the, example. The guys who have like a real skill foundation. You're like, yeah, well, when he gets strong, there will be this other stuff. And, you know, you look up there 23 years old and they still weigh like a buck 70. <laughs> right. So at number six, we have um, I don't, the, the, the enigmatic. Jordan Adams, their first round pick in 2018. I always, I, I always kind of follow this guy's career because when I think about the two longest conversations uh, on a single player I've ever had in a draft room, number one is Aaron Judge and number two is Jordan Adams. Um, and Jordan Adams has nothing short of insane tools. He is an 80 runner. He has, um, you know, we have a 60 on his raw power. There are people who have higher numbers than that on his raw power. Um, and here we are, and he's now 22 years old. Um, and the questions about the hit tool, uh, have been realized. I mean, they're, they're, it's, it's kind of a nightmare. You know, he, there were signs of some things in 2019, um, maybe starting to get a little better. Uh, obviously 2020 was a lost season for everybody this year, uh, playing in high a, he hit 217, 290, 310 with a strikeout rate approaching 40%. Um, and as I said earlier, he's 22. We're kind of running out of time on these tools to turn to anything that is uh, utilizing value on a baseball field. Yeah. Uh, it's This is not the type of player who could have afforded to miss a whole season. Um, he was a high school wide receiver prospect and then mm-hmm. 
Like big time, like D1. Big time, yeah. I was going to North Carolina to play wide receiver um, and then blew up at NHSI, which is one of the bigger varsity baseball tournaments to occur during the spring, the pre-draft spring for the seniors. Uh, takes place in North Carolina. Pretty convenient location for a guy like Adams to come along with his team. And he was he just looked better there from a bat-to-ball perspective than anybody had anticipated. A lot of the two-sport athletes don't do as much during the pre-draft showcase summer. Uh, so this would be the summer between their junior and senior years of high school. And the football players have, like, summer workouts and practices during that time because their varsity season is happening in the fall. And a lot of the kids start playing football. Their regular season will start towards the end of August when the school year starts. So uh, when the showcase stuff for baseball is going on in July and August, like they are doing football activity. And so that was the case for Adams. So there was a shorter window, less data. A lot of the performance data from the showcase circuit is a big deal because it is the best population of pitching that the hitters will see during the course of their entire High school career, basically. Um, The pitching that you see during that time is much, much better than what you see during varsity play the following spring. So even though that's closer to the draft, it's less useful. Um, And so, yeah, Yeah, there are, I mean, teams obviously, you know, they out, everyone has, we talk about models a lot. And there are a lot of teams who do have high school. The high school players are obviously in their models, and a lot of them only use the statistics from these kind of national showcase events. And so, like, Jordan Adams, in a lot of ways, like, physically, there's not much difference between like him and Luis Robert. Uh, his, yeah, no, it's crazy. Yeah, he, he, you know, this is absolutely. If you see this guy get off the bus, you're like, I'm gonna watch that guy play with focus and interest. Uh, his swing just has so much scoop. He's very, very vulnerable at the top of the strike zone. That's a place where a lot of pitchers are trying to work now, uh, and it's just been rough for him. Missing a season did not help. Uh, we still have him 40 plus basically like there's just so much ceiling here that this is kind of where I'd still value this guy is mm-hmm. with, as the equivalent of like, especially in this second round pick, especially um, what in this system. You yeah. Know, yeah. In, in terms of where he's lined up ordinarily. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I said, I don't want to go through all 41 guys, but I want you to um, and you have to take a guy who is uh, a 40 or below in terms of your FE grade. Like, who's your dude? Pick a guy that you just kind of, kind of just a gut feel guy. Guy he's, you see in this, you're like, you know, I think, I bet this guy moves up. Do you want me to do mine while you choose? Yeah, you go ahead. I'm going to go with Alexander Ramirez. Um, okay. Alexander Ramirez played in the Arizona Complex League this year after, and he finished the year in low A after uh, a year in the DSL in 2019. This is a, uh, a huge, uh, athletic corner outfielder with big exit velocities, a very big strikeout rate that needs to get paused. But tools wise, again, it's a Jordan Adams profile, I guess. He's not nearly as fast. He's he just runs well. Um, but uh, you know, for his peer group in terms of his age, the exit velocities are, are fantastic. Um, and if he can get the hitting down a little bit, he might be in good shape. But the good news is he is coming at you uh, with good swing decisions. Um, last year in 35 games in complex league, 154 plate appearances. He, he did walk 22 times. Um, and so that, that's an encouraging thing. Almost half of his hits went for extra bases. Um, the strikeout rate was around a third. 
Uh, I the, the, this is a tools and upside play, but I, I, he's a guy who'd be pretty intriguing to me as a as a throw in type of a deal if if, if I was looking for somebody. Yeah, uh, there was support for him to be higher on this list just because his path to being an everyday player is more realistic than some of the high-probability role players who are ranked ahead of him. Uh, I like Fernando Guinare. He's an 18-year-old righty uh. who, you know, we talked about this earlier. The foundation for success is here. You go look at his DSL numbers. This guy walked, I think, one guy in like 50 innings. Uh, not big stuff. Just sitting about 90 with more precise command than most 18-year-olds by a long shot. Breaking ball has good shape. So someone who over the course of the next couple years seems pretty likely to add velocity to a foundation of like strike throwing and breaking ball shape. Like someone who could eventually blow up as long as they start throwing harder. Um, Our next system we're going to talk about is the Chicago Cubs. This is not the best minor league organization in baseball but it might be the most fascinating in a way and it certainly and maybe it's just the most fascinating because it has the most um variance built into it just in the sense that you know if you look at that the way um you know this was put together uh eric and tess worked on on this list uh four or rather five of their top six prospects are teenagers um and, and six of their top 10 um obviously between what they did in the Darvish trade and the deadline, it was very focused on high upside, very, very far away from the big leagues guys. But they seem to have, um, I don't know, picked the right ones. Like these are very, very interesting players and you may never hear their names again. And they also might be superstars. Um, But the top prospect is a guy who actually got to AAA last year, um, who was their second round pick in 2018 out of an Arizona high school. Also very high on the list of players who I've, been in a room with that have generated a long draft talk. Um, it's Brennan Davis, who is, I, I think this guy gets, Cubs fans are very excited about Brennan Davis. That's fine. Be, be excited about Brennan Davis. He might be really good. Um, but at the same time, as, as he moved up, there is some of, you know, some of the holes in this game are starting to show up a little bit. Yeah. So we Just talked in terms about of what him, he needs, what he needs to work on. We talked about him a little bit before the list went up because uh, he finished the 2021 season as a 60 for us. And so you and I talked about whether or not that was a little bit heavy based on how much swing and miss there is uh, using synergy to, to dive a little bit more specifically into why that was going on. I did decide to round down a little bit just because it, there's a really narrow band in the zone where this guy like can impact the baseball. Um, so there's 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 been some injury stuff too, hamstring tightness, just a, sort of a general tightness overall, and lower uh, half stuff, yeah, yeah, some lower half stuff that is kind of worrisome, I guess. You know, if we're talking about, it's nitpicky for sure, but we're talking about, you know, uh, this guy being a top thirty-five prospect versus him being like a top fifteen prospect. So we we have to pick nits. That's all there is to pick at that point. Yeah, this guy's a great prospect. Um, I just remember all the area scouts here in Arizona just loved Brennan Davis to no end. Single mom. They love the uh, kid too. Yeah, They love the kid. Uh, so yeah, single mom grew up on like a farm basically out in Mesa. Uh, woke up early to, to tend to the animals and, you know, was the man of the house the whole time basically. So uh, the scouts love Brennan Davis and there was just, he had a wonky swing as a high school kid. Uh, and people were scared he wasn't going to hit 
and mm. the Cubs altered his swing almost immediately, and he exploded. So there's still a lot of swing and miss happening here. If he ends up in a corner, which at his size is is probable. It's a big um, dude. This kid's uh, listed at 6'4", 210. Yeah. I, he might be a little more than that. He's a he's a big, strong kid. But he's still, it's, it's you know, tools, pure tools. It's plus raw, plus run. So this is, the Cubs, now that they've had this rebuild period, we start to have an idea of what kind of players in this space they tend to prefer. And really during the era when the Rizzo, Baez, Bryant, etc. core was highly competitive and won a World Series, they deviated from what we've seen here. Like obviously there it was a slightly different regime, but a lot of the component parts are from the the championship Cubs in terms of like the front office and stuff. They're still in place. Mm-hmm. And we saw them draft like a lot of pitchability college guys who didn't really develop at all. Uh, very, very few of them have, have made the big leagues. A couple of them trickled in last year, Corey Abbott and Brendan Little and stuff. Um, but uh, for the most part, like they just didn't bolster that core internally enough while that core was around. And now that they're rebuilding, you mentioned it, like they're just on all these high upside teenagers uh, like Reggie Preciado, the uh, Panamanian shortstop who they got in the Darvish deal. Owen Casey, Canadian outfielder from the Darvish deal as well, who had an unbelievable 2021. Yeah, all these guys are uh, even like Pete Crow Armstrong, who didn't play this year. Right. You know, that's that's risky in and of itself to take a teenage hitter who has basically lost two consecutive years, one to a pandemic and then another to uh, a severe injury. So um, they they this does not seem like a risk averse org. Uh, based on the way they've behaved during the early stages of this rebuild, mm-hmm. um, I, 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 I want to talk to you about a grade that that got put down here on on the Cubs list, and this is with their their number four prospect, James Triantos. Um, this is a second round pick out of Virginia in 2021. Um, yeah, Virginia High School. Yes, um, yeah, exactly. Madison High School in Virginia. This is a, an 18 and a half year old kid. Um, you know, physically doesn't shock you. He's like six foot, one ninety, um, right-handed hitter. Doesn't, you know, plays second base. Uh, if you look at the tools grades, you have a future seventy bat on this. Seventy, yeah, seven zero seventy. And my first reaction to this, I, and 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 I want to kind of talk through this, is how can you have a guy with a seventy bat not be higher? Even though he's already ranked to four, like a, you know, seventy bat, five, you know, fifty power down the line, I was surprised if that's you know where you landed that he's not higher than four. So, so kind of why is he four? There are questions about where he ends up defensively. Like, mm-hmm. is he an infielder at all? Right. Uh, and then the approach piece is way below average. So. This is in the Josh Vitters area in terms of, boy, this guy has unbelievable feel to hit, but at some point will upper-level pitching exploit the fact that he likes to swing at everything. He's just right. capable of hitting basically everything. So, Which can often know, be the worst thing for a player's development. Right. So they start swinging at everything instead of pitches that they can hit. This is a freaky guy in some ways. You mentioned that he's not especially physical and definitely you know with Kevin Alcantara and Reggie Preciado hanging around on the same roster as this guy and Owen Casey too like those guys are all like 6'3 6'4 Alcantara 6'6 right they're gonna catch your eye first right 
not this, but this this guy's not little. Like he is very strong, and he swings with a like real ferocity, and still has fantastic barrel accuracy, even though he swings as hard as he does. And the this guy did not like he reclassified. He was going to be a 2022 draft, and had a bonkers showcase summer in 2020 and reclassified to the 2021 draft. And like, you know, we've talked about this before the ball in play to whiff ratio for these guys, like using synergy to find data. There's not like a spreadsheet with a leaderboard. This was like a seven to one. Maybe it was 11 to one. Yeah. It's insane. He like only swung and missed on the showcase circuit, like five times or something like that. So this guy's pretty freaky and he absolutely looked Dominant in a way against pro pitching that like he did not skip a beat. He adjusted to it immediately. And I tend to think those guys like elite players are just always elite. Basically, there's certainly very good players who have to adjust at some point. They have like fits and starts developmental speed bumps. But the ones who are truly elite like are just basically that all the time. And in two years with James Triantos, he has been that so. I think he still has the possibility of like really exploding in a special way that makes me want to, yes, they came on our top 100, even though he was just a second round pick. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other teenager in the top 10 is ranked at number eight. It's a guy that I, I think Cubs fans pay a lot of attention to. He's a first round pick in 2020 um, from a Chicago high school uh, from Mount Carmel. And that's Ed Howard, who uh, had an, uh, there's no other way to put it. He was bad. He was bad in 2021, at least offensively. Um, this kid looks like a plus or better defensive shortstop. Um, but at the same time, in his in his full season debut last year and his pro debut at the same time, um, and again, it's a tough thing to do for a 19 year old from Chicago. This is not a kid who played right. you know 80 to 100 games a year overall in, in Florida or Texas or California. It's a kid from Chicago. Um, Hit 227, 277, 315, a 591 OPS, um, 18 walks against 98 strikeouts, and, and a little over 300 plate appearances. Offensively, he was uh, almost a zero. Um, what you know, I, I I feel like his that was enough to to take a little luster off his prospect status, just in the sense that he's if he's going to turn to a a, a major league baseball player. He's got it. it no one, and no one's saying he's going to hit 320 or anything like that. But he's going to have to hit a little bit at least, and 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 even that's kind of becoming a question in my mind. Yeah, I this org is the one early on here that definitely was most developmentally punished by the restructuring of the minor leagues between drafting Ed Howard, drafting James Triantos, trading for Reggie Preciado and Jason Santana. Trading for 20 interesting Latin players who were in their teens. Right. Like there just wasn't enough low-level roster space to put these guys at a developmentally appropriate level. Ed Howard is a guy who should have just been in short season ball this year. Like he should have spent the early part of the year in extended spring training and then gone to, you know, short season affiliate in the Appy League or whatever. But uh, instead, he and Kevin Made and Jason Santana uh, were all asked to go directly to low A, and all of them flopped st- statistically. Mm. Um, so I've never been 
the Ed Howard has huge tools and upside guy. I think that he is a fantastic defensive shortstop with perfectly suitable bat to ball skills. And that's basically it. Mm. Like he was a, he's always been a lower variance 45 type for me. Um, I don't want to overreact to how bad things went. Now, again, I said, and you still have a 45 arm to be fair, right? Like this is still just where he's been basically like no change here. So, um, the Ed Howard stuff I've seen in person over the last year is still really encouraging. The defensive piece of it is absolutely there. Uh, and you know, he was he was a successful high school hitter too, like on the showcase circuit. He didn't strike me as just because he was from a cold weather area. Like he wasn't a raw player. Um, he was a little bit older for the high school group and hit pretty well. Like I thought that that if there was a guy among those teenage shortstops who I mentioned who I would you know if you had to twist my arm, send one of them to full season ball right away, it definitely would have been Howard. Uh, the other thing that we don't really know, I think, is like what the automated ball strike system mm. at low A Southeast did to... What the impact was of that, yeah. Yeah, like I think the uh, certainly for the, like the pitchers who were there, the walk rates were, were pretty high. Um, I think that anywhere the human called balls and strikes ends and robot umps begin that transition that transition for players is going to be weird and hard to understand um like it just is so so different it really is the there there's there are a handful of pitches every game that nobody in the stadium thinks is a strike and are called a strike yeah um and so it is just a weird it's a weird thing so i think that was probably part of this as well uh, I, I'm not worried about Ed Howard, but uh, like I said about the elite players thing before, like that, I think this pretty much eliminates the idea that that is what Ed Howard can be. Um, uh, and, and, and he still ranks one ahead of their, their first round pick from, from this summer in, in Jordan Wicks, who we talked about a lot just cause you, you were able to see him and, and, and just a, a guy that was well known. Um, but Wicks is a, a, you know, a guy with, um, substandard velocity, but, plus command and a killer changeup, and it just feels like um no you called detmers like a low variance middle guy this is a low variance four or five starter yep yep uh, lefties with great changeups in command tend to be something and they, uh, they and, and and don't get fooled because I, I will say this much like lefties with great changeups in command tend to absolutely kill it in the minor leagues like lead the league in era and have crazy strikeout numbers and have the kind of of statistics you would expect from a top 50 prospect even if their major league future might not be that. Tommy Malone is just like the Andy Van Hecken. These are the floors. Yeah. For a guy like this. Um, So, yeah, I, I think that, you know, the, the future value piece of it is definitely much more important than the ordinal rankings. Uh, Mm -hmm. But yeah, like Jordan Wicks was just picked in the back third of the first round a year after Ed Howard was taken uh, in like the middle third of the first round, unless we're coming off of Ed Howard in a big, big way because of the season he had, like they should probably be stacked close to one another and probably in uh, this order just heuristically. And yeah, I'd, I'd rather have the, we tend to take hitters over pitchers when, when things are close. Uh, yeah, this Cubs system, 
I would call any the forty plus tier and above are basically the impact tiers. Mm-hmm. Uh, like these are the sexy toolsy players who could be really quite good even in a limited role. Uh, like Chris Taylor hasn't technically been an everyday player for the Dodgers the last couple of years. He he's just awesome in a super utility role. Um, and like the Cubs forty plus tier goes all the way down to rank number twenty three. And the Angels, it stops at nine. And that's, I think, a pretty good indicator of the impact depth of any yeah. of these farm systems. It's a great way to look at that. And it, it, it's important to know if people get worked up about this. And, and But it's, it's really important that like I, you know every team's number eight prospect is not a number eight prospect. Some are you know, right. would be three or four in another organization, and some would be 15 or 16 in another organization. Um, okay, so again, going with 40 or lower, gut feel, who's your guy? I'll take Tyler Schlaffer. Schlaffer is one of those guys who, by like the third time I saw him last year, I was like, all right, enough of this. But I gained appreciation for his entire three pitch mix uh, and just what he offers in terms of like frame projection. So I think Tyler Schlaffer is like definitely not one of the more famous guys in this system, but. Mm-hmm. Just a really good developmental 20-year-old arm to have in your system. I am going to go with 2020 fourth-round selection Luke Little. Um, okay. You know, the, the, to use the the ultimate scouting cliche, this is what they look like. Um, Luke Little is left-handed. He is somewhere in the 6'8", 230 range. Uh, it's upper 90s. It's a plus slider. And we'll figure out together if he can throw strikes with it because he usually doesn't. If you ever want to have a lot of fun, however, uh, get out the Google machine and go look up Luke Little statistics at San Jack. Um, they are insane. You're talking about uh, a guy who was you know, somewhere in the 18 to 20 strikeouts per nine range during his time at, 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 at Juco in Texas. Um, he's really big. He throws really hard. Also has a good shape to it. Um, and the slider uh, flashes crazy. Um, he's not really consistent with it, much like he's not really consistent with his command. Um, but there's there's an upside of a high leverage reliever here, like a really nasty, mean bullpen piece. Yes, and now you've officially touched on the like the two guys who, as I was shuttling these lists around to people who see these systems most often, like Luke Little was another one where there were there were advocates for him to be higher strictly because he has that freak factor where there's elite mm-hmm. arm strength from the left side, and just a better chance of him becoming blowing up and being something awesome than a lot of the other guys who ranked ahead of him. Right, and I, I yeah, I, I'll be the first one to say I'm auto, I'm always attracted to freak factor types. Um, final list we want to talk about today came out today at Fangraphs. Uh, that's one that Eric and I worked together on, and that is your Oakland Athletics system. This is not a very good system, but as we wrote, that's going to change. Um, it's not going to change for reasons that will make Oakland A's fans very happy because it's going to change because they're trading away some really good big leaguers at some point, probably before the season starts. Um, you know, Matt Olson is going to get a big net. Like whoever they get for Matt Olson, whoever the headliner is, is probably going to slot into the top five at a minimum. Um, and there'll probably be a second player that might slot into the top 10. Uh, if they cha- trade Sean Manaya, it's probably going to get someone who slides into their top 10 at a minimum. Chris Bassett, Frankie Montez, same story. Um, and, and as well as Mac Chapman and, or Matt Chapman. And as you know, you and I talked privately and you mentioned this, you know, they might hold on to Matt Chapman and hope for kind of an offensive rebound as opposed to, to selling low. Um, 
their top prospects, the guy you and I've talked about a lot, which is Tyler Soderstrom, their, their first round pick out of uh, a California high school in 2020, who, um, you know, looks like the rarest of rare, like just a plus bat plus power offensive machine. Um, we'll figure out where he's going to play defense. It's probably going to be first base might be somewhere else. Um, if you look at the comments and don't read the comments, people, um, some people were surprised at Zach Geloff being the number two guy, but I think it's important for, let's say it here. Um, you know, Eric and I heard from people in this business who whose evaluation abilities we respect greatly and have made, have put together great careers based on their evaluation ability. Say he actually might be the better guy. He actually might be their number one. Um, you love this guy heading into the draft and, 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 but he looks like he can really hit. Yeah. Uh, Geloff moved the needle for me just during the summer and during instructs. He went from a guy we liked before the draft to a guy who we think has a chance to to really explode. Um, it's a he's got a weird swing. I compare the swing to David Fries, uh in the blurb. He's not nearly the defensive player that David Fries was. Um, but yeah, I, Geloff crushed it all summer. I I am very skeptical that he's better than Soderstrom. Like I I feel very strongly about Tyler Soderstrom. Yeah, I would. Yeah, and but, and but, you know, and it, it's reflected. Yeah, we have Soderstrom one and Geloff two. But if we're looking at the other guys in this system, except for Pedro Pineda, the other ones who are in this general area where you typically just put Geloff offhand based on where he was drafted and his like overall performance in, in broad strokes. It's guys like Nicky Allen and Brian Buelvas, like guys who I think their ceiling is that of a likely role player mm-hmm. uh, or like a low end regular Nicky Allen playing shortstop every day would, would be okay. Um, but but, but he's he probably, he's probably hitting, player. he's probably hitting seventh, eighth or ninth in the lineup and, and, right. and playing like this is one of the best defensive players in the minor leagues. This is, we, we put a 70 on the field, um, just a phenomenal defensive shortstop. It, but, you know, him, the fact that he's played a lot of second base and even did so last year speaks more to even how Oakland sees his future as to any sort of way they feel about his glove work. But, um, but Geloff has a chance in my mind to be an everyday player. Uh, the, the, the likely role for him is in this, like, we don't know if he's going to play third base yet because there are questions about the arm strength. So, you know, what you do with him, whether it's second base, I don't know that that's necessarily a remedy for, his lack of arm strength, he's still going to have to go to his right, like backhand balls and, and make a strong throw at first base. If he's playing second base, uh, there might be a defensive positioning answer at third base that lets him mask the lack of arm strength. Mm-hmm. Um, he just has like a weird short stroke. It almost looks like he's hurt or like it hurts the throw. There's just a better chance that this guy's an everyday player than the other ones ranked right behind him here. So um, it felt fine to, to stick him that high. Yeah, um, I, I do want to talk about, uh, you know, they, they do have some some very interesting teenage Latin players. Um, you know, Pedro Pineda is a guy who looks like he's going to be able to uh, hit for power and, and has a chance to stay in center field. Um, Brian Bulbas is another interesting outfielder. Um, but I, it, it's, you know, the, the biggest name coming into the year was, was Robert Poisson, who, uh, you know, there's there's... There's some similarities to Ed Howard in the sense that, you know, he, as a teenager, the the system itself kind of forced him to play full season ball and he was more than overwhelmed. But at the same time, 
there were real concerns. You know, we talked, you talked about Ed Howard. You said, oh, I haven't really changed on Ed Howard despite what he did. Um, but people kind of have changed on Poisson a little bit in the sense that um, this guy just had real trouble hitting fastballs, at times even just kind of okay fastballs. Yeah, it became abundantly clear during minor league spring training that this was going to be a real problem. Um, I don't know. There's always – there's a point – and Eric Pena with Kansas City is the other one where basically I was done pretty early on with with, with both where I just was like, no, I don't think this is going to work based on the way their swing mechanics are. Like there's just – it's really hard when you're as long as those two are right. to hit any kind of velocity. And when it's already a problem this at this low a level – uh, I have to think it's going to continue to be. Now, this is still a very projectable teenage sh- switch hitting shortstop. And he is a shortstop. So the, yeah, he's a real shortstop. Yeah. 6'1". There's plus raw there. Like, it's like tools-wise, it's all there. Um, but none of that matters if you can't hit. Right. Yeah. So he's still a guy who it's pretty easy to look and, and say uh, he's a prospect who has likely on roster utility because he can play shortstop and like is a switch hitter with power. Um, So there's just situations where that is going to be fine. Uh, But yeah, we just haven't 40 at this point. Um, I'd be very surprised if there were a rebound in a meaningful way. Um, And actually like watching him play in the Dominican this winter, it's, Starting, he's starting to slip physically. It would seem, mm-hmm. um, where like he's starting to get big. So, it'll be interesting to see how he comes out next year. But uh, we have Poisson. This was a guy basically who John Copalella ended up sacrificing his life in baseball to acquire, and it turns out he's not good. Right. Um, I remember uh, both guys are bad. Maiton and Poisson just turned out to be bad. Yeah, during the winter meetings. Um, whatever year that was uh, after the winter meetings, I had to stay an extra day because in Orlando, there was a workout um, just for all the guys. The Braves had to sacrifice. Um, and that was such a strange event. It was at, um, I, remember who's, I think it was, at the, it was at the Braves complex actually. Yeah. I think if I remember right. Um, and you went there and watched all these players that they lost at their complex. Not a great, uh, not a great group in terms of the no. outcomes. No, not at all. Um, it's interesting. I just want to kind of talk about this this um, dichotomy, if you will. Um, ranking so Poisson ranks 16th on our list. Ranking at 15 is Garrett Acton. Um, do you think Garrett Acton will end up being the highest? I, 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 I'm not thinking about this well enough, is why I'm asking you. The highest ranking guy who signed as a NDFA after the shortened 2020 draft. Uh, I think that there are a couple other. There's some other candidates, but I mean, this is a guy ranked 15th who, you know, got the $20,000 after the fifth round. Um, it's, uh, you know, in, in the interest of full disclosure, um, want him to be an Astro for 20K. And, and actually, I, I personally spoke to Garrett uh, prior to the draft and um, great kid. I, I really, it's good. He was at the University of Illinois um, and was, you know, really considering um, going back to school for his senior year and then going to grad school from there and, and not even having a baseball career. Um, really smart kid um, from the suburbs of, of Chicago. Um, 
he's been through some stuff. Uh, his, his father passed away at, at a young age, and this guy is, you know, if you just looked at his stats, you'd go, this guy must throw 103 miles an hour. Um, he was actually better after he got moved up to high A. His strikeout rate was nearly 50% at high A. Um, but it's more because kind of 92, 93, touch 95. Um, yeah, it's, it's weird. crazy deception and like tailing life. Hellish, like good luck if you're a right-handed hitter and this fastball is running in under your hands. And knows where to put it and puts it in the right place. It knows how to run it under your hands. That's the thing. I, it, it, it's great if you can do that, but he... He can really execute that when asked to. Ben Leeper on the Cubs list, who was also a 2020 undrafted free agent um, and reached AAA already. Mm-hmm. He is ranked higher than Acton. He's a 40 plus. He already has. He is a real breaking ball, which Acton does not yet have. Um, and then John McMillan from Texas Tech is like an elite fastball. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are the two who, uh, after the 2020 draft, were stuffed pretty good on the Royals list in McMillan's case mm-hmm. um, and the Cubs list in, in Leaper's case. Uh, McMillan, I know other teams have tried to trade for already. Yeah, I saw uh, I mean, I, I saw McMillan in person that's, uh, the spring before um, he was draft eligible. And, and it was um, I, when I saw Alec Manoa, I also saw Josh Young, and that was on Texas Tech, and McMillan was there. McMillan touched 99. was kind of parked at 98, 99 out of the pen that weekend. Is there something about Texas Tech where the school is either underscouted because of all of the relevant Texas schools or they're not good – that program is not good at optimizing their arms and it happens in pro ball because, like, there are just so many of them who seem more interesting or to have developed – after they leave the school, Caleb Killian, who was part of the Chris Bryant trade, he's on the, the Cubs list. He's another one where, like, they're still trying to find good secondary pitches for him, but he's got real arm strength and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, plus-plus command. Um, right. And, and then, yeah, there's McMillan. And, like, was an old, who was, McMillan went in, like, in the 11th round um, in 19 and didn't sign. Right, and then um, he signed after it was just some of this was artificial because of like the um the draft itself. The shortened draft, yeah. But like Caleb Freeman with the White Sox, Bryce Bonin with the Reds, Clayton Beater, I guess, is one who mm-hmm. was actually Beater drafted. Was a really high. good one, yeah. Um but like these are all the guys who they they were arm strength only frustrating dudes in college at tech, and now they're like actually something. <laughs> so I don't know what it is, but like a bunch of these Texas Tech guys are actually good, and it doesn't seem like they're they're almost never drafted as if they're good. Um, it's funny because I was going to ask you for your gut feel guy, and then you know I would say it's got to be a forty or lower, and then I forgot we put a forty plus on on the guy who would be my gut feel guy, who's Lawrence Butler. Um, so I can't pick him, but so let's talk about him so I can do it anyway. Um, Lawrence Butler's six three two ten lefty power stick. Um, either close to or the best pure raw in the, in the system. Um, probably has the athleticism to play a corner plays a very good first base. Um, kind of was 50, 50 outfield first base this year. Um, and I was told he actually looked really good at first. Uh, there is a lot of strikeouts in this game, but everything's trending in the right direction. Um, you know, he hit uh, over 300 actually in the, in the final couple of months of the year with a lower strikeout rate. This guy made, made real progress. And if he can continue that progress, um, this could be an everyday corner outfielder. 
Yep, another one where the argument was just this guy's got a, a more realistic path to being an everyday player than these other role players in in the system. So, um, yeah, he's very special uh, physical physically, and the power piece of it is a big deal. At the same time, the number of first basemen who strike out this much is there's just Miguel Sano. That's it. So, <laughs> it's a zero. Yeah. Um. So it it is tough. Like he is kind of on thin ice if he ends up staying at first base. The all of the power has to play, and even then, like you know, he strikes me as a pre-arb first base type guy, mm. a la Christian Walker, Jesus Aguilar, um, Kevin Crone. Uh, I think that like Juan Yepes in the Cardinal system, who had a fantastic fall league and kind mm-hmm. of put himself on the map. Like he's another one where this guy's just a forty. That's not, that's nothing to sneeze at. Like a 40 first baseman is still a guy who you're happy to plug and play almost every day uh, until, you know, his counting stats make him. There's just a lot of those guys floating around basically who have the capability of hitting like 25 bombs and playing first base. So who is your gut feel then? Uh, pick a guy with a 40 or lower FB. Weisenberger. Jack Weisenberger, reliever from the 2019 Michigan College World Series runner-up mm-hmm. team. His slider's awesome. Uh, and that's basically it. Like the other stuff, <laughs> the other stuff is fine. He sits about 94, um, which is pretty average for a reliever, but it's a seven slider. Uh, and so I, I think if there's anybody on this list, like some of the relief type guys in the 40 plus tier of the A's list, just throw a little bit harder than Weisenberger does. And Weisenberger's breaking ball is better than, any of of those guys stuff yeah so. this is the, the the term that i the first time i heard the term was when i was talking to aj hinch about uh acquiring luke gregerson he's a, he's a slider monster yep um i'm gonna go with michael goldberg um third round pick in 2020 out of georgia tech center fielder who had a pretty nice year uh going uh in the first half of the year before he got shut down with an injury but um plus run good center fielder uh makes contact uh, hit for always hit it at, at Georgia Tech had a very you know a good track record of performance um, but just is not like a physical kid not a lot of power there's still not a lot of power but he went from having no power to at least having sneaky pop last year um, you know this guy hit three home runs at Georgia Tech in three years three uh, and hit five in 49 games this year um, so there were some signs of, of, of some occasional power Um this is really, I, really good things about the makeup. He's actually a data analyst. He actually went to Georgia Tech and went to school at Georgia Tech and and took it seriously, um, and 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 like studied data analysis and did internships with big companies doing data analysis and has already talked about like when this ends working in a front office, um, like really bright kid. Like it's probably if you're gonna throw a bet down, it's probably a fourth outfielder ceiling. Um, guy who kind of plays all three, makes some contact runs and stuff, but there's, there's a little bit of upside here just based on some of the trends we saw last year. Yeah. I agree with everything you said. Uh, this was a standout guy during minor league spring training for me where I was just like, Oh, you know, Goldberg can really run the bats on time. It's a short compact swing. He's going to hit fastballs. Like I like this guy. He's behind Luis Barrera, who is like a closer to the big leagues version of this, where it's like a speed centric bench outfielder contributor type guy. Um, and before we, we, we finish up Oakland, I think we'd be remiss not to talk about um, a couple players. Just like they have, they have kind of gone for some, some college shortstops with power in the last few drafts. 
um, and it hasn't worked out. Like ranking 24 is Logan Davidson, who uh, was first round pick in 2019 out of Clemson. Um, like you get it. It's like this 6'3 guy. He's a real shortstop. He's not a huge runner, but he's a real shortstop. 6'3 switch hitter with power um, and a real shortstop. Just didn't hit, and he really, really struggled at Double A this year, and 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 especially against lefties, and lots of strikeouts, and now he kind of feels like a utility guy. And then, um, just a player I remember well because I went and saw him in Jeremy Ironman, who was a second round pick out of um, Southern Missouri, who was kind of a iffy shortstop with real power, um, and and he hasn't hit at all and struck out at a at an absolutely alarming rate last year. Like they have, they've had some some rough top of the drafts going with these college infield types. Yeah, and like to be fair, I loved Ironman while he was at Missouri State. Like Missouri State, yeah. Um, I was in there. I was in Fayetteville to see that regional the year that like Berger, Berger. and Ironman and Dylan Coleman and those guys were mm-hmm. there. Um, and Ironman hit two home runs in the first game, one to left, one uh, to right. The second of which was like a ninth inning walk off, or was it? A- game maybe it was in top of the ninth go ahead homer I, I forget but like the track record for oakland's drafts especially as you mentioned among these college shortstops mikey white mm-hmm. uh richie martin who's the other eli white um it's a pretty long list and they haven't really gotten anything out of that group i've had people in the past just question the entire uh, domestic college shortstop population overall. Like it's not very often that one of them actually pans out in a traditional way. You certainly have your like uh, except like Paul DeYoung type exceptions who right. find a way to stay there and, and do something that's maybe not like them being a traditional shortstop in, in the truest sense. I guess Jeremy Pena is going to perhaps be an exception to this. Yeah. Um, but drafted as a good defender who's just kind of taken made great strides at the plate since, since turning pro. Right. So, um, yeah, this is a uh, this system's not great either. Um, but I do think that four months from now we'll have updated it three or four times, and yeah, it's going to be a much different different system yeah. by the time the season starts. And, um, and candidly, part of why we put it out at this juncture, I mean, it, it lined up nice. Like we're doing, I tend to like to do these groupings where the teams who are being released are from the same geographic vicinity like the the in terms of complex yeah yeah because most of the scouts will have the that group of teams so i can knock out you know one instead of making three separate phone calls weeks apart from one another i'm doing one right um so uh but also like it'll just be nice to draw people back to this list as it gets bolstered with the new guys over the next couple of months so that's prospect talk. Eric and I will talk further prospect lists down the road, I'm sure. Um, before we finish this segment, I do want to talk about one other piece of, of baseball news, which is the passing of Roland Heeman, a uh, long, long, long-time baseball executive, um, a, a phenomenal player evaluator, a guy who uh, was a GM for a while, uh, the man who invented the Arizona Fall League, uh, among other things, and a guy who... Um, you saw it when he when when the news when the news broke that he passed. The guy who was just exceptionally nice to people, um, and and uh, you know I I had a couple encounters with him myself, um, 
and he just treated me like so kindly and i i learned things from him and he gave me his time and he, he he was interested in what i was saying and he listened to my questions intently and answered them thoroughly and um and, and just gave me way more time than i ever deserved um but but a guy who who you know roland heeman is not a household name in baseball uh in the public he certainly is one among the industry um and just one of those kind of almost names behind the scenes that is 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 much bigger uh as far as his impact on the game i think a lot of people realize yep um seven his career in baseball spans seven decades jesus christ <laughs> which is kind of like even to think about that i'm just like uh that sounds okay i guess <laughs> uh, yeah, i don't even know if i want to be on this earth for seven decades right um but yeah definitely um i, I met mr Hemet a couple of times he was very nice to me uh, he and Luis Gonzalez were at uh, Tuki Toussaint's pro debut, which my ex-wife and I went to, and um, he was a little weird with her, but like, <laughs> just like he was just man-spreading next to her, basically on those right. shitty stone slabs that they have at, on the Diamondbacks' backfields for people to sit on. Um, but yeah, like he's one of those guys where I heard he died. It didn't really bum me out because he had such. Like, this guy's lived his life. Yeah, he certainly didn't leave anything on the table. Right, yeah. Like, (laughs) if you look at all the places that this guy has been, it's it's pretty incredible how many successful franchises he's been around and then to have the creation of the Fall League on. You know, your resume, too, is, like, unbelievable. So, um, Mr. Heeman was around the Diamondbacks a lot here the last seven years Mm -hmm. uh, since I've, I've lived in the Valley, and... Uh, the scout section at Chase Field just has like from you know, if you're sitting in the scout seats, the the very first row, uh, there's like a long placard of his career timeline with cool pictures from like stuff he's done and people yeah. he's been around and stuff that he's been a part of. So if you ever are at Chase Field, um, some of the, the ushers are kind of lax right now because like what are they going to do, you know? stop you from sitting in all those empty seats <laughs> so uh go to the scout section if you can before the game and go take a peek at that like long uh like it's not a tapestry I, i'm struggling to think of what it might be called but like they have his timeline visually represented uh in towards the, the front of the scout section so folks should go check that out and rest in peace mr Heeman. absolutely we will take a break We'll come back. We'll talk to Ryan Thibodeau, the guy who tracks Hall of Fame votes for some mysterious reason. You'll listen to a song by Dead Best, so stick around.
Welcome back to the podcast. Special guest time. Listener of the week time. Our listener of the week uh, is famous on Twitter for tracking everybody's Hall of Fame ballots, or at least those that have a Hall of Fame vote, and keeping you up to date on where all the players stand and who's going up and who's going down. And he joins us from lovely Hercules, California in the East Bay. It's Ryan Thibodeau. Ryan, how are you? Doing great, KG. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. My first question, why? Why are you doing this, Ryan? What is wrong with you? Yeah, uh, it it was kind of a big accident. Um, You know, about a decade ago when, uh, you know, Jeff Bagwell first came on the ballot. I I grew up outside of Houston. He was one of my first favorite baseball players. Um, And he didn't make the Hall of Fame the first couple of years. And that was shocking to me. And so I started following uh, pretty closely you know, the other folks at the time who were tracking ballots and keeping a close eye on these things. And um, it really snowballed over a couple of years to where uh, all of a sudden I had my own tracker and it was becoming more and more popular. Um, and here we are. And, and we've gotten to the point where like when writers, some, you know, put their ballot out on Twitter, they just copy you at this point. So you know about it. Yeah, that uh, happens pretty frequently. Um, I, I joke sometimes that I think that they do that sometimes so that I have to be tagged in all their mentions also. <laughs> um, so I have to experience it along with them. Uh, but no, it, it certainly makes things uh, a lot easier than it was five or six years ago when I had to you know, keep an eye out for everything myself. Uh, it's, it's certainly a nice little perk in the last few years. So uh, we've gotten to the point where it's not required for people to reveal their ballots. That's still correct, right? Correct, yeah. So last year, when all was said and done, how many, like, what was your percentage of ballots that you knew about? So at the end of everything last year, we got to, um, it's close to 80%. I'm pulling it up right now. 83% last year, uh, which was our best ever, um, or close to it, 84% the year before. Uh, so the last couple of years have been significantly more than than ever before. And do you find a trend from the one fifth or so ballots that you do not get? Like, have you found that it, it, does it does it generally like carry over one to one? Like the percentages as they are at eighty three percent are what they are at one hundred percent, or do you find that the people who do not reveal their ballots really move the needle in certain directions? They certainly can. Um, almost this is a little bit less true than it it was before the last couple of years but you know on the day of the announcement every year i have my numbers you know in the tracker and almost every candidate their final number is a little bit lower um so so the private voters have tended to be uh maybe smaller hall uh definitely more anti uh the ped candidates um, and almost everybody takes a hit from where I have it right at the at the time of the announcement to what the actual final results are. So the smart thing to do is just be to, to expect everyone to go down a bit. Basically, yeah. I mean, there's a couple of, uh, you know, Hall of Fame prognosticators um, who every year, you know, they call it unskewing, you know, the tracker basically where they'll, they'll look at what has historically happened, what is happening this year, and they'll try to project uh, the final results based on what we know so far um, and especially the last the last couple of years one of those guys Jason uh, Sardell 
has has been really close on almost everybody. So he's he's made kind of an art out of out of unskewing, you know, the public ballots versus what we expect to happen in the end. You so I mean I said that there are people who who tag you um and say, Hey, here's the ballot. Do you know of other people in who have Hall of Fame votes who are kind of annoyed with you and or what you do? I basically assume even the people who tag me are slightly annoyed with me at times. Um, <laughs> is, it, is it just because you're encouraging them to people to get responses on Twitter or? Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the Twitter aspect of this whole thing, I've, I've, I've said for years that I should probably just stop doing the Twitter part. It actually costs us public ballots. Um, they're, at least a dozen voters who over the last few years have just said, look, I'm not going to do this anymore. Like it's not worth it. Um, and I understand, uh, you know, I, whether they tag me or not, I see what everybody's doing on Twitter and it's, you know, it's not that fun most of the time. Um, but you know, and there certainly are voters who, who the BBWAA a few years ago voted at the winter meetings to, to make it mandatory for all ballots to be public a couple of weeks after the uh, results were announced. Um, the hall decided that they, you know, didn't want that rule. So that's why ballots can still be private. Um, but I know that some voters, even at that time, um, really pressured, you know, both other members of the BBWAA and the hall to make that not happen because they don't feel like they should, um, you know, have to have their ballot public. Do you think they should all be public? Uh, I I used to think so. Um, I used to one hundred percent think so. Now I ninety five percent think so. I think there's is that five some... percent just because of the shit on Twitter? <laughs> Maybe that's probably part of it. Um, like what's I, like what are some of the bad things you've seen? Like how bad does it get when someone submits an, an objectively stupid ballot? I I got a a direct message from a voter four or five years ago who was at a police station. Oh my god! And, and was filing a police report because somebody had threatened his life essentially. Um, and that didn't happen on Twitter. That was somebody emailed him after they saw it on Twitter or whatever. But you know, I mean, people get death threats. Um, there's there's just nasty racist stuff. Uh, you know, it's it's Twitter. It's it's everything you would expect. Uh, from Twitter. I guess I didn't uh, expect that. I, I I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I didn't. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I don't thought think it would be like kind of just an overwhelming negativity as opposed to death threats. It is. I mean, the vast majority of it is just uh, stupid. I would say where it's you know people have their their candidates from their hometown that that they want to get in, and even if it's you know objectively the fourteenth best player on the ballot, if you don't vote for that player, they're going to yell at you. You know that's that's most of it. Um, but it, it does get uglier at times. Um, so, you know, do you have, obviously, um, this is a hobby. What is your, what's your normal life? This, you, you don't make any money off this. This is not your job, even though I'm sure people treat you like it is your job. Um, like what, what's your, what is your normal life? Uh, that's changed a little bit over the last couple of years. Um, I was a registered dietitian, uh, for a few years. Um, then when we, when my wife and I had our second child, um, her Chinese medicine practice, um, had been growing and growing to the point where she was going to hire somebody to do her, uh, you know, back end office work. Um, and we decided, uh, once our second baby was born that I would just be that person, um, and get to hang out at home with the kids and, 
take some of the stuff off her plate. So uh, I work from home. I'm also mostly a stay-at-home dad. Um, so, yeah. Can I pry on this one? <laughs> sure. Wait, so your wife has a Chinese medicine practice? Yeah, she does acupuncture. She has acupuncture. Okay, I was going to, yeah. what does that mean? Is that? Your wife's an acupuncturist and you run the business part. Yeah, I do the spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> Is there an acupuncture tracker somewhere? Is there, does, do any of the spreadsheets for your wife's acupuncture business have the word tracker in the title? They do not, but maybe I should work on that. <laughs> does, did, um, obviously with acupuncture, no, I just want to talk about acupuncture now. Um, <laughs> It's kind of real, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can't, I can't explain it. Uh, you know, I think acupuncturists sometimes have a hard time explaining it, or at least in in uh, in a Western, you know, kind of way. Um, but you know, I, I'm as skeptical as anybody about anything, and uh, it's helped me. Uh, and it, I mean, you know, it, it helps her. Um, she got into it because she had a back injury and the only thing that helped was acupuncture. And so she started studying it after that. So, I mean, obviously, you know, this affects everything, but like to, in order to get acupuncture, you need to be in the same room and very close to another person. Mm -hmm. um, did the pandemic hurt the business? It, it did. I mean, she had to shut down for uh, about four months. Um, so that was not amazing. Um, you know, she's basically when she reopened, she's done more than any, um, any other, you know, medical office I've seen as far as, um, you know, ventilation and UV light sterilization in between patients and N95s for, you know, the people who work in the office and all that. So um, I don't know if anything is completely safe but uh, right. she certainly did her best to, to make it that and since she's reopened um you know things have mostly returned to normal um so that's been good and you're listening to the acupuncture hour <laughs> on fangrass podcast kevin goldstein um let's get back to baseball so uh we talked uh, you know we had jay jaffe on last week who obviously is you know has his own hall of fame expertise um and we talked about the significant chance of uh this year in terms of the writers voting, uh, being a goose egg, um, right now on your tracker. And obviously it's, uh, we're very early, you know, this is like, uh, projecting an election, um, you know, political election, 10 minutes after polls close, 7% of the ballots are in about, um, and, and bonds, Clemens and Ortiz are all above the 75% mark. Um, it's hard to see that lasting. Do you think we're getting a shutout at this point? If you had to project? Uh, I, I would have projected a shutout more confidently before we had seen any ballots. Um, since we've started, the support for Ortiz has been a little stronger than I thought. Um, I think he has a, a real chance um, to hang out, you know, right at 75%. It's going to be close. I don't think he's going to be at 85. Um, but I also don't think it's going to be, you know, lower than 60 Um you know, there hasn't been any evidence so far that there's going to be some 10th year wave, you know, for Bonds and Clemens and, and Schilling. Um, none of them have, you know, their percentages look pretty good right now in the tracker. But, um, you know, we, we really focus throughout the entire season on on changed minds and flipped votes. And the flipped votes just aren't happening yet uh, for okay. Schilling. For Schilling, he's, he's lost four votes that he had last year. So that's certainly not a good sign for him. Um, 
So it's either it, it looks right now, um, and like you said, we've seen maybe seven percent of the ballots. Um, but it looks like if if anybody has a chance, it's it's probably David Ortiz. Now, do you? You've said you've been doing this for almost a decade now, right? Do you still enjoy it, or does it ever feel like a chore? Like if all of a sudden things flipped, and the Hall of Fame said yes, that these are all going to become public, mm-hmm. um, would you just kind of back out and say, "Oh, great." Thank God. I don't think so. Not yet. Um, I have the the feeling every year uh, before anything starts where I have to like update the spreadsheet for the new year. Um, and I, I, I do have a moment sometimes where I think maybe I should hand this off to, you know, the fellows that are helping me. And um, but once we get going, once we see the first ballot, I'm, I'm kind of all in again. It's just so fun. Um, you know, I. In, in a in a parallel universe, I, I might have been a, a sports writer or tried to be a sports writer. Um, so some of these people have been, you know, heroes of mine since I was a kid. And um, to get to banter with them, to get to send a direct message or an email uh, to people that I really like and respect is, you know, it, it doesn't really get old. So um, I, I don't really feel like being done with it yet. Um, yeah. Do you, do you chase any down? Do you ever like go, hey, I, we don't have one from you. Can you tell me when it's coming or is it coming? Or do you or are you just kind of a patient observer from the outside? No, um, I'm more patient now uh, than when I started. I used to send hundreds of emails uh, every year. Um, you know, basically Twitter was just getting started, so it wasn't kind of an, an automatic that, that people were going to be revealing uh, without me pressuring them basically mm-hmm. um now i mostly uh just email the folks who email me back every year and it's just kind of the uh, the pattern that we've established um and there are a few dozen of those um who for whatever reason you know don't want to tweet it or don't want the social media hassles but they you know will email it to me um, so you get of, some you do get some ballots that don't like that, that don't get tweeted out definitely yeah it basically just becomes your job to tweet them out Right. Um, do you, this is a, a dangerous question, but I, I, do you think that the system is a good system with the way, with, with who votes and, and who gets in? Do you think the system works at, at its base level? You know, this will be pretty unpopular, I think, but, but I do for the most part. I think, um, you know, if you look at the, the, candidates that have been elected by the BBWAA over the last, you know, eight or nine years. Um, They sure all look like Hall of Famers. Um, A few fall through the cracks here and there. Um, And that's what the now the era committees are for, uh, is to catch those and reevaluate them. But I think um, I think the writers as a whole do a pretty good job. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there anything you'd change? You know, people say that, you know, why can't the broadcasters who are, you know, watching 162 games a year, why can't they be involved? Um, you know, I think that would be perfectly fine, uh, especially, you know, the the amount of voters has, has really dropped dramatically uh, in the last few years. Um, it used to be, you know, in the 500s or close to 600, and now it's, it, we think this year is going to be less than 400. That's, um, but that's because they, they, they changed the eligibility. Like, you can't keep it forever. You now have to have, like, covered... Exactly. You have um, to have covered the game in the last five or ten years. I'm not sure which. Ten years. Yeah, you get ten years after you 
you know, are no longer actively covering baseball. Um, so there was a big, you know, a big drop immediately when that went into place. And then it's continued to slowly. Uh, basically, the new voters coming in are not uh, keeping up with the old voters going out. So the numbers seem to slip a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't mind the broadcasters being involved. I'm not a huge fan of the idea of uh, players having a say necessarily. Um you know, when you look at some of the polls that happen uh, of players, you know, they tend to vote for their teammates uh, more often than than even um, writers do of their hometown, you know, candidates. Um, so that doesn't strike me as a great idea. Same with the fans. Uh, fans tend to have their, you know, hometown favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, writers, I, I'm not entirely objective all the time, I'm sure, but I think do a better job than than fans or players of of being objective right um do you ever think about tracking anything else is there anything else to track like i think about like you know award season the ballots don't get revealed till after the award is announced like there's nothing else to track is there yeah not not really yeah um as far as the annual awards uh there is a rule that they're not supposed to reveal their ballots until the results are announced so there's nothing to really track there um i'm kind of a baseball only sports guy i don't really care too much about football or basketball or hockey so um so what yeah about sumo are you into sumo <laughs> well since i've been listening to this podcast it's become uh, more interesting but uh not uh, sure has anything any... <laughs> ever good come from people tracking sumo results hasn't that been bad for sumo kg there Some was a cheating scandal there was a slight match fixing scandal a while yeah. ago we won't we won't get into that <laughs> um well if you so if you want to keep track of of things going on in the Hall of Fame voter, you can follow Ryan. He's at not Mr. Tibbs is, is his Twitter handle, or you can always go to bbhoftracker.com to see the latest uh, complete results as we know them so far. And then don't get angry about these. It's just baseball. It's just the Hall of Fame. Don't make anyone go to a police station. Ryan, I hope everything is drier than it was in Hercules, California. And thanks for coming on. Thanks, guys.
Welcome back to the show. Thanks to Ryan for coming on and talking about his strange life. Uh, our musical guest, it's really a tribute to Eric. It's Philly-based band, Dead Best. Uh, they are on Don Giovanni Records. This is their first release, Dead Best, and you are not supposed to hear this record is the best way to put it. Um, this is two uh, longtime friends, part of the Philly punk scene, Adam Gorin and Brian Soko. Uh, they're in uh, bands like Franklin, um, AMFM, Fracture, Armalite, and... This was like in the late 90s or 2000s, and then they ended up finding themselves living right next to each other just outside of Philadelphia. Uh, and as the pandemic hit, they started uh, writing songs together as something to make the time go by and to to kind of make the time go by in a better way. Um, and they didn't intend for this thing to be released. It was just something that they were doing as a hobby and it ended up being a real record, and it came out on... Like I said, Don Giovanni Records, the official record company of the podcast at this point. Um, this is straight, straightforward American rock and roll, if you will. Um, it's very good stuff. You can check them out uh, at deadbest.bandcamp.com or read about their bio and, and kind of a longer story about their record uh, over at DonGiovanniRecords.com. Um, really good stuff. Check them out. Thanks to both the artist and the record company for providing the music on this week's podcast. They're Philly based. Were you a big part of the Philly punk scene when you were growing up? No, but my former brother-in-law absolutely was um, John Galm from a band called like snowing among, among others. Uh, and so I'm sure all these people know John somehow. Yeah, probably everybody knows each other at some point. Um, ready for emails? Yes. Send us emails, chinmusic at pancrafts.com. Our first email comes from Ethan. Ethan says, hey, KG, as an Orioles fan, I often can't help but think about what if with Josh Hader. I'm sitting here two beers in on a Wednesday night, and I'm wondering if you had any hand in his trade. Did you know about Hader? Did you know that Hader would be who he is now at the time? Did you see the upside? I'd love to hear about it. A pitch to the GM about getting Hater would be so interesting to hear about. Thanks, Kevin. Love the pod. Enjoy the chats and articles. Have a great rest of your week, weekend, and holiday. Look at that. That's a that's a fine wishes from Ethan in Baltimore. Uh, sure. I had a lot to do with the acquisition of Josh Hader, and then aren't I brilliant? And I had a lot to do with trading him to Milwaukee. So aren't I brilliant? Um. So yeah. So. Uh, when we acquired Hater, or the Astros acquired Hater from Baltimore in the the Budnaris deal, um, Hater would just had come on the scene and was you know like a weird kind of day three high school pick. Um, he had a very good year uh, in in low A, and it was and and honestly, I believe the pitch was this Hater guy looks really interesting. We've gotten very highly varied reports on the stuff. Like some were saying he was like ninety five, ninety six. There was some saying he was 91, 92. Uh, but the performance is really interesting. Uh, it's quite possible that the Orioles don't really know about this guy as well as they should yet. We should ask for him. And um, there were people with the Orioles who really yelled at them not to trade him, and they ultimately trade him anyway. Um, at the same time, then after he came up in the Astros system and looked really good and really good pitch data and everything was great, um, it came in the trade for Carlos Gomez and, and Mike Fires, and they really wanted Hater and. Um, and put him in the deal. And at the time I said, I think this is, you know, I, he was starting at the time. I said, I think it's just a lefty reliever. I did not think he'd be some sort of ninth inning monster. I thought he'd be a good left-handed reliever and therefore someone willing to trade. The big hang up on that deal was actually Brett Phillips of all people, um, 
outfield. I had no trouble trading. I'm like, this is a fourth outfielder. I don't know why we're getting so worked up about this guy. Um, but at the same time, like I was the guy saying, I think Hader's just a good left-handed reliever, not um, one of the better closers in all of baseball. So sure, let's just focus on the good part. Yeah, I had a lot to do with the Astros getting Josh Hader, and, but I also had a lot to do with the Astros trading him away. So um, at the end of the day, I don't think that grades out very well in my favor. I saw Hader with Delmarva. It was the Sally League All-Star game in Lakewood. Uh, the game was like delayed for several hours because of rain, and I just kind of hung out. And Hader was fine. Um, somewhere in like a cardboard box, I for sure have notes from that day. I don't know if I wrote anything <laughs> online from, from that day. And... Then the the longest look I had at him was after Houston traded him to Milwaukee, he came to Fall League. And it was clear at that point that regardless of what he was going to be, that it that he was going to be an awesome whatever it was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but even that first year in Delmarva, I mean, he made 17 starts. And it's not like he struck out more than a batter per inning or anything like that. He wasn't utterly dominant. He was... He has a relievery stat line mm-hmm. uh, as a 19-year-old in low A. I guess the question is, if you know a guy is going to turn into this, about where on an overall universal prospect list does he belong? If you, you know he's going to be Josh Hader. Pretty damn high. Yeah, Probably I, like 15 or 20 or something. I think higher than that if you know he's going to be Josh Hader. I think Even you know, if guys you know like gonna be a sh- like a shutdown closer. Yeah, I don't. I, I'm not a, a you know. A big, obviously, there's been a lot of discourse, and at times our name unfortunately got dragged into it about you know using war as an arbitration calculation. Um, well, and the yeah. problem with that is that like, you know it's it's hard for a reliever in any setting to just because they don't accumulate uh, innings to like generate a war over one. Like over one's pretty rare, and. Um, so I just don't. I, but I think they're worth more than that. Yeah, I would. I think if you know this guy's going to turn to your ninth inning closer, I think he's a single digit prospect in your system. Hundred and forty three punchados in eighty one innings in twenty eighteen against big league hitting. That's yeah, he's crazy. He's absolutely unhittable when he's on. It'd be, just, it'd, it'd be interesting to see um, if Milwaukee, a team with uh, a limited payroll. Um, looks to deal him before he enters his third year at ARB to see if they can really restock. Maybe. Uh, they I mean, shouldn't, but it would just see if they will. It would be interesting, and obviously they've had conversations with teams for the last like year and a half or so about it. Um, mm-hmm. He's rebounded. I think he had a little bit of a swoon there. Um, yeah, he was great in the second half. Yeah. He was awesome again. So I think that, yeah, he. they have Devin Williams just kind of waiting to be about this good, uh, just not as consistently healthy. Mm-hmm. And then obviously we love Aaron Ashby too, who I think is also just like an elite back-end guy. Yeah. Um, our next email comes from JD, and JD says, I literally just heard you say, I wish Billy Hamilton could have hit more. It would have been fun. It would have been so much goddamn fun. Uh, I did say that. I support it. So I pulled over the car to type out this email. So I didn't forget to ask you, if you could sprinkle a little bit of X into Y player's game, which other players would have been so much more goddamn fun. Thanks for a great year. This pod has been the highlight of my year. JD, if this podcast has been the highlight of the year, I just worry about how bad your year has been. Because that's it's that's bad. This should not be the highlight of the year. I'm glad you enjoy it, and you should enjoy it, but highlight of your year, I, I, I worry about you. Let me know if you're, that you're okay. 
Um, it's weird because my first answer always is always like a healthy thing. Like I wish Eric Davis was healthy, but that's not really a skill. And so I think the, the thing is I'm trying to not trap myself. And there's 18 million guys we could say if he could have hit, he would have been. We just talked about them. Jordan Adams, right? Uh, if they could hit, they'd be awesome. I'd be, your ultimate version of that is Bo Jackson. Like if Bo Jackson could have hit, he would have been. I don't know, the greatest player of all time. I don't know. And so, like, I've been trying to get away from... My answers are all, like, these hit tool guys. And I'm trying to figure out a way to get away from the hit tool thing. I, you know, one thing that came to mind was, like, all the the tails. Some of them very tall, to be fair, of just, like, you know, Ichiro's batting practices. And this guy could hit 40 if he wanted to. Like, Ichiro with power would be a fun one. Um, do you have anything come to mind? There are a lot of, like, the things that tended to come to mind for me were like the want guys like Yadier Alvarez. I wish he gave a shit type thing. (laughs) And then the health piece for, Oh my God. Like a million guy, Eric Davis for me is the king of the health and like, and Ken Griffey, obviously if Ken Griffey was healthy, he might have had hit 800. I don't know. If we just parachuted into a prospect list from like 10 years ago, I bet the thing, especially regarding the pitchers, that we would say is like, boy, I wish Jared Parker was healthy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wish Danny Holton and Jacob Turner were. I wish Jesse Foppert was healthy. Mezzarocco, right? Like, it is so many guys. Um, so the the specific tool stuff is is pretty difficult. Like, so many guys just end up being pretty good mm-hmm. uh, without you know, with like a flaw um, and they could be like, you know, like utterly dominant players if they didn't have that flaw, but they do. And so it feels disingenuous to pick one of those guys. Um, and then, yeah, the hit tool guys are also all over the place. Like Corey Ray, Estevan Florial. Like there's just so many guys like that. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Like it is pretty Jonathan scope with plate discipline. Like what? <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. That's a good one. Like a second baseman who, with that like amount of power and arm strength, basically, mm. but who has pretty lousy play discipline. Like still turned into a pretty good big leaguer, but would probably be a superstar if he had better play discipline. I don't know. There are Jason Neighborgall with command. Yeah, there. Yeah, so many of those guys too. Where uh, there was a guy named Francis Cespedes. This was like the first day I was at the field after I had been made a full-time Fangraphs employee. I like quit my <clears throat> insurance job and went with Bill Mitchell to the Reds and Dodgers uh, extended spring training game on like some random Thursday back in 2016 and or 2015. And um, Yadier Alvarez threw that day. And also this left-handed pitcher named Francis Cespedes, who was like 94 to 97 with a 70 or 80 grade changeup and just had zero idea where it was going. Like super long arm action through several of them to the backstop, totally unusable command, but some of the most like ridiculous stuff I've ever seen from someone from the left side. Still like he barely got anywhere even in the minors because his command was so terrible. Yeah. It was with the, so many of those with guys. the Dodgers at the time as Dodgers career was 38 innings and 49 walks. Um, he pitched a little bit in the New York Penn League in 2019 with the Indians and walked 23 and 26 innings. So he's making progress. I, I believe he's not currently affiliated with anybody. 
Uh, uh, how about defense? How about like, is there anybody who? Yeah, I was, was trying to think about that. Like, terrible if, defensively. Like, anyone terrible defensively? If they come up like the bat was just good enough to play, and you figured it out, right? Yeah, like I don't know. I'm thinking about it because of thinking about DeYoung a little while ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, like Jed Jerko. Some of these guys, like if they could actually play a defensive position, probably would have been. Yeah, I would have had at least a longer tail awesome. career. Yeah. yeah. It's a fun thing to think about. Yeah. We've named a lot of players. <laughs> Our final email comes from Luis. Luis says, hello, Kevin and guest host. We're all missing baseball news, so let me paint you a hypothetical. The two of you are out having a coffee or what have you, and one of your many funny quips, that's me, Mr. Funny Quips, makes this other person laugh, make it obvious they were eavesdropping, smoothly offering to buy you drinks, you all continue to chat. After a lively conversation, you find out you're talking to a big streaming executive who's a casual baseball fan, has a bajillion dollars to invest on movie projects, and darn it, they like the cuts of your jibs. Days later, you're signed a huge deal to produce five baseball-adjacent movies or series with full hiring and creative control. Any actor, any language, locations, everything is at your disposal. What type of stories do you consider? What characters do you focus on? Do you do any biopics? What area of production do you each dive way too deep into? And how many of these projects would be described as gritty by critics? Love the podcast as always. Luis. Um biopics like the first three names that come to mind for me for biopics are kurt flood Hmm. steve dalkowski and rube marquard now two of those are stories of mental illness so i don't know what that says about me um but those would be my three biopics if i was going to do a biopic those would be my first three choices that come to mind um i think there's a movie to be made there i mean there's movies that have been made and you know I, i there's been um Sugar, which is very good, and the Miguel Sano documentary, which is very interesting. Um, yeah, I still think there's something. I think there's something to be made about the international world that where a lot of things have been touched, almost like a money ball of the international world um, that shows more how teams behave. Um, I think would be interesting. Um, you got any ideas, Eric? Yes. For initial, initial pitches here. Um, I think of movies set around the '89 World Series and the earthquake. Mm. Uh, would be pretty cool, like something that is pretty contained to a certain timeline. Similar to the way, have you ever seen the miniseries that was on ESPN, The Bronx is Burning? Yeah, I remember that, yeah. So, like, obviously in that vein where it is like a dramatization of true events and the intersection of something significant societally with baseball stuff that otherwise exists independently of it. So I think that would be pretty interesting. Uh, the biopic thing, I had a hard time coming up with names. Um, there's already been a, like a Doc Ellis Mm -hmm. biopic. That's really good. And it's, it is pretty good. Um, I do have like, one of the ideas I have listed here is Spanish language baseball anime dash Satoshi (laughs) Kon. But really that Doc Ellis (laughs) movie is already kind of in that vein like Satoshi yeah. Kon for folks, folks who don't know like some of the more influential anime movies uh, were directed by that guy uh, Perfect Blue I guess would be my favorite one it's pretty dark so if you have to be in the mood to watch it folks are gonna gonna do that um, I also have listed here Kelly Leak sequel like 
Jackie Earl Haley now as Kelly Leak. Like, what is Kelly Leak up to at age 50, whatever or something? <laughs> 60 something, maybe? Yeah. Um, so I'd be interested in that. Uh, I have it, it, Debbie does Dallas, except it's Johan Mieses does West Palm Beach. <laughs> that's on my list. That's not going to get on Netflix. Uh, well, yeah, that's true. Um, and then I have uh, MST3K Trouble with the Curve. Oh, God, that's a great idea. The two things that I had trouble thinking of that I like – I if I get to pick a director, my David Lynch is my favorite director. I can't really think of a concept no, for a no baseball good. movie that I'd want to hand to him. No, not at all. I so, think I, I could think of a I could think of a PT Anderson film, but not a David Lynch film. Um so I don't yeah, I really don't know if there's even I couldn't even conceive of a premise that I'd be like, yeah, let's give David Lynch this baseball movie to do. Uh, I do think that there's a doc that hasn't been made yet uh, that follows scouts around. You would never be able to make it because right, no one lives. would allow it. Right. But there, there's enough interesting material, life on the road type stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, that it would make one hell of a documentary if, if someone – you just need someone who's like going to retire and doesn't give a fuck and uh, just gives you permission to do it. And just follow it for a spring. Team, I guess. Yeah. Uh, maybe there's some sort of like statute of limitations that can occur for a thing like that to eventually be released. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I like this is maybe my favorite email question that we've ever had on any <laughs> of the shows that I've done. Like, this is absolutely the type of thing that I like to sit around and and think about. This these types of hypotheticals where you're like, yeah, like if I had to remake Jaws. Like, uh, what would the cast look like? And how do you solve the problem that cell phones create in this plot <laughs> from <laughs> 45 years ago or whatever when uh, they didn't have them? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's it's a cool question. Yeah. I wonder if there were, we're going to end up living in a world, and we just don't know yet because I don't know how this is going to end, where there's a there's a documentary to be made about the current labor negotiations. Maybe, um, yeah. It'd probably be a bad thing if that happened. Yeah, exactly. And you'd have to um, do it now. Like, so much of it is like... Oh, you got to be at the moment, yeah. Yeah, like, you'd have to... It'd have to be happening already. Um, I... This, like, maybe steps on a, a part of the culture moment thing, but, like, the Arizona Coyotes hockey team is just embroiled in a very dramatic arena conflict with the city of Glendale. Mm -hmm. It's been embarrassing. Like it was, they said last week that like human error has caused them to miss rent payments for like the last year and a half or something like that. Um, you'd have to just drop in now to get like an, probably a pretty cool documentary about the situation that this pro sports franchise is in where they might be like playing in a temporary arena for like the back half of this season, they might be locked out of their arena. Like it's crazy stuff, but you just have to like, it is so hard to get all of your ducks in a row for a thing like that in anticipation of a thing happening often, like as stuff is happening, it's just too late to capture for documentary type stuff. Right. Um, yeah. So, so those are your emails, send your emails, including interesting artistic hypotheticals to chin music at fangraphs.com. Eric, it's prospect season. You're working on prospect lists. I am deed. Uh, how 
has your process changed this year from previous years? Well, the fact that multiple people are working on it is different. Trying to like coordinate the communication between, I mean, it's, you know, like Kylie and I did them together, but had a very natural synchronous, uh, just vibe. Um, and so it really just felt like it was one of us doing it. And then now to have Brendan and Tess and you like have it going from one other person to three other people has been new. Um, and so I'm learning other stuff about like myself and the process piece of it as it interacts with like other folks. Um, the, I don't, we've definitely laid track for future lists in a better way this off season. And some of that has been facilitated by the fact that there are more folks around like a bunch of the diamondbacks list is already written. A bunch of the giants list mm -hmm. is already written. That stuff's probably not going to come out for like another month or so. Um, which is, which is different than, you know, me like wrapping up a list at 2 AM, right. Sending it to Carson Sestouli to look at when he wakes up early in the morning, East coast time, and then by the time I finally wake up the next day, like it's been published and you know, all the, all the reaction stuff has like gone on already while I slept. Um, do you feel good about letting go of some of the work or does it, or do you have any sort of like control issues? I, I, some of, some of the stuff, I will still, like, as I go through and read stuff that people have written, there have been a couple of things where I, like, have wanted to make sure that this, that, or the other thing was true before something was published. Um, like, Tess wrote something about someone shifting to throwing exclusively from the stretch. And because I didn't see it with my own eyes, I had to go find video of that guy pitching. mm to make sure it was true. Um, and so there have been like some little instances like that. Ultimately, like uh, the, as we get to what, like I have to ask myself, what is the point of what I'm doing? <laughs> and at an early stage to just have a more comprehensive, realistic and improved version of this thing that like other people and publications have been doing for a while. Mm -hmm. Like that was the point. And then I feel like I got there. Um, it's a lot of work and it's very stressful. Um, as much as I do like it, like I don't always think it's good for me how much I've been working. Yeah, sure. Um, but like now that that has been attained and I'm not the kind of person who's like trying to be, famous like online famous i don't need like a twitter presence or anything like that i don't need to like i'm not what trying to saying? advertise hard seltzer on my social media or anything like that <laughs> uh so like what's the point now and it is like let's help tess grow into like a baseball job let and like use her skills that are different than mine 
to make our overall content better. Um, like her video editing skills are unfucking believable. And the what that opens up is from someone who's, you know, a little bit green is still like a higher degree of mechanical analysis and sensitivity to like change from one period to another for a player because her video editing skills facilitate ease of access to that. Like to, to understand, I like, I don't know how to put Mackenzie Gore's new and old delivery side by side, but it takes her like five minutes. So, right. um, so like some of that stuff, uh, and yeah, like now I think the goal will be, I don't always love the hiring process at like the baseball publication websites, right? Like it is a lot of, Hey, apply here, send tweet. And so it's a lot of people who are like already online a lot, as opposed to me, like going five miles North to ASU and finding like some hungry bio mechanics student or something, Mm -hmm. or someone who's like learning about uh, you know, visual machine learning or something, some something that I ca- am curious about conceptually, but don't have the intellectual horsepower myself to like incorporate in the work while I'm, you know, busy seeing two or three games a day. Like I just can't learn. It's harder. It's getting harder for me to learn anything new. Right. Um, and so I'm still feeling out some of that stuff, like how to best go about it. Um, teams have already been like talking to Tess and Brendan and stuff about jobs here and there they've uh you know so i think at some point we'll have to deal with a thing that's been a problem at some of the other places that like have a group of people who work on this which is like when there's turnover it is hard to have consistency it's not easy to replace someone who's competent at this Mm -hmm. they are pretty hard to find um so at some point i hope that that's a problem that we have because that would be very good hmm and um, you know we're rolling, and and so let's let's let's, let's preview people. Um, what what are the next systems? So Milwaukee will round out this like East Valley Arizona pod, mm-hmm. um, and then we will move on to the Tampa area pod in Florida. So that'll be Toronto, the Yankees, the Phillies, and then we'll pull Detroit into that mix. Like Detroit is sort of on an island in terms of geography yeah, geography right so uh, but they're closest to that tampa group so we'll just sort of yank them into into that pod as well um and yeah if we're cranking out two lists a week uh every we'll a, week we'll be on then, good we'll make good time then we're making good time um and there when it was really when it was just me for those couple of years between when uh like kylie left for espn even when kylie and i were doing it together there were just times when one th- weird thing would happen or like we'd get burnt out around the holidays or travel and this and that would make it so that like there would be a week without a list or there would be a couple weeks in a row where there was just like one list. Mm-hmm. Um, just one thing kind of going awry would become a problem that snowballed in terms of time. Uh, and now that I think a bunch of us are working on it, that it's a little harder for that to happen. I still think somewhere probably here in the next couple of weeks, like yeah, we'll slow down. We'll have a slow week until after the holidays end. And I think that's mm-hmm. fine because like, it's, it's fine. Okay. It's totally fine. But yeah, I don't think that like we'll be going into June or anything. 
this year. There's something cool about having basically a live update to the list where I'm going to the field and then with the information I gleaned that day, finishing a list. Right. Um, and I know that there are mostly like people who work in the industry who fucking love that because in a weird way, like our lists are up to date, even though they're coming out later than everybody else's. But when the season starts, it is a, a lot to carry to like go to all the baseball that I want to while writing the back half of the lists. Right. Um, so we'll try to avoid that this year. So we're going to try to avoid that. Um, it's time for a moment of culture, Eric. Who's going first here? We never decide this beforehand. I'm going to go first. Um, go. All right. I have three things. Number one is the oh Beatles God. documentary on Disney Plus, Get Back, which I finished last night. Um, I don't very, have Disney Plus, and I'm, I'm not going to get it to watch a Beatles talk. Yeah. And I'm, I haven't like sat and thought about how I properly fight with you about this on the pod, so we're not going to. Nope. Um, but no, is, if, you love, if you like the Beatles, that's great. Enjoy them. Have a good time with them. Uh, there is definitely McCartney stuff in the doc that was like, oh, maybe I'm kind of like this sometimes. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's not always good. Um, and But yeah, it, it was overall was excellent. And the color is awesome too. Like it is visually very beautiful as well. Um, Meg, Mike Farron, and, and I went to the Coyotes Flyers game over the weekend and watched like two of the... <laughs> Two of the saddest franchises in the sport, the Flyers, were winless in 13 straight, fired their coach. Oh, wow. And were on the tail end of five games in seven days when they were playing here, which is crazy for a non-baseball sport, basically. Like, there's nothing else like that on their schedule the rest of the year, five games in seven days finishing here in Phoenix. Um, And, like, you know, folks can look this up. The Coyotes arena stuff is a huge disaster. They want to build a new arena here in Tempe on what is currently a literal dump. Um, There's like issues with the airplanes coming into our airport and how low they'd be relative to the arena. Uh, They didn't pay their rent and like uh, attribute it to a clerical error that occurred month after month after month for a couple of years. (laughs) And so they might be locked out of their current arena, like in the coming months and have to find somewhere temporary to play like in ASU's 5,000 seat. Uh, but also like very new state-of-the-art hockey arena here on campus. Um, So like that situation is weird. And then the final one is this YouTube channel called Delight. This is uh, totally silent. There is no narration. Korean YouTube channel that just like it's edited footage of people making food in Korea, like restaurants or street vendors or bakeries. Sure, we watch a lot of videos like this, yeah. There, there's closed captioning that explains what is going on, but otherwise it is just, you know, the sound of the donut shop or the lady at like the, the food cart on the street making, you know, rice cakes and frying. When I Googled them, the, the first recommended is egg bomb vegetable pan toast. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Some of it, some of what they put on stuff is definitely like, oh, they, they like ketchup a lot, you know, like her. There, there's just a, a fish is definitely in fish and shellfish are in way more things than you would guess. Like if you yeah. get a breakfast sandwich over there, there's just going to be like squid or crab meat in it or whatever. Um, but yeah, delight. It's it's often on late at night as I'm like trying to force myself to wind down. Uh, right. 
that's a good place for me to do it. So uh, I'm going to talk about Will Sharp, um, which is always a weird thing for me to do because one of my dear friends is named Will Sharp. This is uh, not my dear friend. This is the filmmaker who has an E at the end of his last name. So uh, we watched it, we read about it, and we're interested in seeing it. And, and um, you know, and so we watched it, and, and it, it's on Amazon Prime. And it, it's a movie called The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne. And it is, it is, it's a biopic, as we talked about earlier, about an artist named Louis Wayne, who was a British man in the first part of the 20th century, who uh, became kind of, he didn't become especially famous, but his work became especially famous for his drawings of cats that kind of took the, took the British world by storm. Um, and he was an eccentric guy and, and, and he's somewhere between eccentricity and, and actually having legitimate mental health issues. Um, he didn't really reap a lot of benefits from his works. He didn't copyright it. Um, and, but it's, 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 it was an interesting, it had its moments. There were some flaws. It had some moments with some kind of magic realism kind of stuff in it going on that that I really, really liked, which there was more of. Um, it wasn't bad. And, and it was like, and then we moved on and, and, and then we saw like, there's this new series on HBO called Landscapers, which, um, has Olivia Coleman and, and David Hewis. And it's, it's, based on the true story of this um, kind of, I guess, best described as meek middle-aged couple who um, is arrested for murdering her parents 15 years ago. Um, and it's based on a true story. It's not, it's not fictional. And, um, but it's much better. But, it, but we were watching it, and after the first episode, it said directed by Will, by Will Sharp. And I went, how do I know that name? And like did the IMDb thing. It's like, oh, it's the guy who made the Lewis Wayne thing. Um, this show's much better than that movie and that movie was fine it was good this show is really good there's only two episodes in it's on hbo so it's i don't know if it's on hbo proper but it's definitely on hbo max which is where we consume our hbo stuff um but obviously exceptionally good actors it's also way better paced and and also has some uses of, of magic realism where they're you know being interviewed by the cops and as they tell their story they're actually placed in the situation at that time um and and very interesting set pieces and lighting, all that kind of stuff. It's a much better show and, and, um, than the movie was, but this guy's doing interesting stuff. And I, so I, I would still say go see the electrical life of Lewis Wayne. It's, it's, it's a good time to, to spend a couple hours of your time, but, uh, landscapers on HBO, which is, we realized later that's, oh, it's the same dude. Um, can't, I, we're only two episodes in and, and like annoyed that the third one's not out yet. It's one of those things where we get so, into binge watching things that you're sitting going well where's the next episode where's the next episode and have to wait one week is now annoying there's something nice about that i there is i agree i i agree but at times like you're like you know but you still you sit down on wednesday night you're like oh what should watch oh oh, there's a lamp oh there's not a landscapers damn it i love the feeling of the oh we have new this to watch right (laughs) you know when it's when it's come out like there's something nice about that i tried not to binge anything after a little while, like once I start to sweat on the couch from sitting too much, it's like you know maybe a fourth episode of this is doesn't need to happen right now. <laughs> <sighs> Eric, I think we're done here. Um, I so for the listeners who are still with us, um, I think there's going to be an episode next week. Um, there will probably not be an episode in the week between Christmas and New Year's. Um, and if you follow me on twitter i'll keep you updated from there but eric i want to thank you for for wasting your afternoon with me glad to do it i'm in the uh 
the post-booster shot haze slash glow. So I don't even really remember what we've talked about, but <laughs> I hope it was good. <laughs> and maybe it's more memorable for the listeners and, and to all of you. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.